In a world filled with spiritual and physical needs, lack of gospel access, extreme poverty, exploitation, and so much more, how should the church respond? And what does our use of money say about us? In this message from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, David Platt warns of the danger of the love of money, as well as the eternal reward for those who use their resources for God's glory and the good of others. Riches are not inherently sinful, and God gives us good things to enjoy. But we must be on guard to make sure that our hearts treasure God more than the things of this world. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here is David with a message titled, The Gospel and Materialism. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and pull out those notes that are in your worship guide. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll actually start in just a second in verse 6, and then we'll work our way to verses 17 through 19. Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert, economics professors up at Covenant College, have written an excellent book called When Helping Hurts, addressing how to, in the most healthy ways, help the poor. And they start in the beginning of their book by writing these words. The Bible's teachings should cut to the heart of North American Christians. By any measure, we are the richest people ever to walk on planet Earth. Furthermore, at no time in history has there ever been greater economic disparity in the world than at the present. While the average American lives on more than $90 per day, Approximately a billion people live on less than $1 per day. And 2.6 billion, 40% of the world's population, live on less than $2 a day. Their conclusion? They ask, what is the task of the church then? And their answer is, we are to embody Jesus Christ by doing what he did and what he continues to do through us, declare using both word and deeds that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords who is bringing in a kingdom of righteousness, justice, and peace. And the church needs to do this where Jesus did this. Among the blind, the lame, the sick and outcasts, and the poor. So we were talking last week, if you were here, or maybe to kind of bring you up to speed, if you are not, or if you're visiting with us tonight, about physical poverty in the world. And I just want to give a little bit of specific definition to that tonight. So consider the people, over a billion people, living and dying in desperate poverty, on less than a dollar a day, over a billion, in that billion, you have hundreds of millions in slums, these are urban pockets lined with hundreds of thousands of people crammed into small shacks and shanties. I think about the Dharavi slum 
in Mumbai, India, where I was not that long ago. Over a million people living in an area about half the size of Brook Island subdivision. A million people, half the size of the subdivision right next to this church campus. Out of that million, about a fifth of them have HIV AIDS and about 100,000 of them are street children. Hundreds of millions in slums, hundreds of millions starving. We say, I am starving for some food. No, you are not. But hundreds of millions of people are. Millions of children exploited, children often the silent victims of poverty, exploited, used, abused, discarded, millions of children orphaned in all kinds of settings due to all kinds of circumstances. So these, these are not just numbers. These are, these are people. These are individuals, men, women, kids, like us. Their poverty, now this is a picture of physical, material poverty. So this doesn't even touch deeper levels of poverty on an emotional, psychological, relational, even on deeper personal levels. So just a physical, surface picture of poverty, what it means for them to be materially impoverished means to have a lack of food and water. Over a billion people on the planet today who do not have access to safe drinking water. A lack of education, massive illiteracy rates in countries all across Africa and countries like India. Inadequate medical care for some of the most basic of illnesses here. I'm not, I'm not talking about high-level surgeries. I'm talking about treatment for stomach problems that we would take an over-the-counter pill for and it would be gone in a few hours that people die because of. Brain damage, one of the most devastating pictures of poverty in the world is permanent brain damage caused by protein deficiency. The first two years of your life, 80% of protein develop, brain development happens in those two years. And if you do not have sufficient protein for that time, then you will pay for it the rest of your life with a malformed brain. And preventable disease. You have disease like HIV, AIDS that is spreading like wildfire in ways that could be prevented. And then you have easily curable diseases and, and sicknesses. So, so this, is, this is reality. That if you allow yourself to really think about, will overwhelm you. So just in case you, you haven't noticed, we have now officially moved from superficial things like football games on Saturday that do not matter to things that really matter. Okay, we've just gone from things that our affections are so tied up in to things that our affections need to be tied up in. It's, it's, it's deafening when you think about it. And when you realize that the God we worship in this room said in Deuteronomy chapter 15 that among his people... There should be no poor. The God who gives us a picture in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, of a community where there was no needy person among them. 
A God who brought his people together all throughout the New Testament to bring relief to those who were in the middle of famine. A God who from cover to cover in this word shows us that he wants his glory and his grace and his mercy known among those who are most needy in the world. This is the God we worship which leads us then to understand material riches in the church. When God says, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, God says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Okay, let's, let's review here what God is saying to us in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The path to great gain is contentment. Be content with having necessities. Food and clothing, Paul says, having the necessities of life covered. Christians can and ought to be content with the simple necessities of life. Are you content with that? Like really, brothers and sisters in Birmingham, Alabama, are you content with simple necessities? The Bible tells us, be content with having necessities, and be cautious with acquiring excess. Be very, very cautious. The desire for more is dangerous, Paul says, and ridiculous. So materialism is not just damning. Materialism is dumb. You think about it. What does materialism do? You will take none of it with you. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take... Nothing out of the world, Paul says. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. You will take none of it with you. It will take contentment from you. The more you acquire, the more you convince yourself that you need it, the more you want to have it. And your acquiring ends up robbing your soul of contentment in your God. You'll take none of it with you. It will take contentment from you. And you will miss God's purpose for you. What if God has made us the richest people ever to walk on planet Earth for a reason other than more indulgence for us? What if God has actually given us this for His greatness to be known among all peoples? So it's thousands of people groups that haven't even heard the gospel. What is more in line with God's purpose for you? Getting the gospel to them or buying a second home? Come back to that. So that's the path to great gain. Not just gain, but great gain. Great gain. Be content with having necessities. The Bible says be cautious with acquiring excess. Why be cautious? Because this is the path to total ruin. Paul addresses two things in verse 9 and 10. In verse 10, it's the love of money. And in verse 9, it's the desire for riches. Really two ways of saying the same thing. And he says that both lead to a life of self-destruction. Materialism plunges you into ruin and destruction. See this. God is giving us here a warning for our good. 
I know it goes against every other message you're getting in this culture, but he's telling us this for our good. Let's believe him. It leads to self-destruction and a life of self-mutilation. The language of verse 10 is startling. You pierce yourself with many pangs. Run from materialism. Run from the snare that is everywhere in suburban Birmingham. Run from it. It's a path that leads to total, eternal ruin. You say, well, what should we do with our riches then? I am glad you asked. Verse 17 says, God says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them. Charge. So here's the charge. Here's the charge. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life, the plan for rich people. To all who have riches, i.e. to us, flee self-confidence. Verse 17, charge them, charge them not to be haughty. Possessions produce pride. Mark it down. Possessions produce pride. We think, no, they don't. We think that because we're proud. (laughs) We, We think, I'm okay because I have stuff. I'm secure because I have stuff. Now, we would not say, well, my security is in my stuff, but you start telling us to give our stuff away to the nations and our insecurities will rise to the top very, very quickly. Flee self-confidence and flee self-centeredness. Do not put your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Riches cause you to put your hope in yourself in what you attain, can attain, and you start to think, you start to think, I'm okay, look what I can acquire, I can do. No, that kind of thinking will kill you. And it will kill others because you will acquire more and more and more and pour your resources into yourself instead of the glory of Christ being made known to the ends of the earth. So flee self-confidence and flee self-centeredness and instead put your hope, put your focus on God. In other words, 1 Timothy 6 is urging us to Delight in the giver, not in the gifts. Put your heart, set your heart and your mind on the giver, not more gifts. Focus on God. He gives now, he gives good things for our enjoyment. This is key, verse 17. Things in and of themselves are not bad. They're good gifts from God to be enjoyed. And as good gifts, we are to do good things with them. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. We give good things for others' enjoyment. Be rich in giving. The biblical antidote to materialism is extravagant giving. The biblical antidote to materialism is extravagant, sacrificial giving. So give good things for others' enjoyment. And in the process, we will invest good things in ours and others' eternity in giving. Not in hoarding. In sacrificing, not in indulging, we store up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future so we may take hold of that which is truly life. So that is explanation of this word. Now, an illustration of this word. An illustration. Not the only illustration. This word is intended to come to life 
in each of our circumstances in wonderfully creative ways according to the design of God. But tonight, I want to give you one picture, introduce you to one picture of 1 Timothy chapter 6 in action. So I first heard about Katie Davis when we, as a church, were walking through the Radical Sermon series, looking at tough but true and all-satisfying words from Jesus in the Gospels, beckoning us to find our treasure in Him and our life in Him and to die to the things, pleasures, pursuits, possessions of this world. Katie was living in Uganda, Africa, and started listening in on our journey through the Word Then she started pointing others through her blog to listen in with our faith family as we walked through the word. And so in a real wonderful sense of things coming full circle, we have the privilege to be encouraged in the word from her life as she shares with us tonight. A sister in Christ who we have a lot to learn from when it comes to this word in action. Brooke Hills, will you welcome Katie Davis to our faith family? Now, I know from being around Katie, from reading everything she's written, and just her countenance and the way she carries herself, that her desire is that Christ would be exalted in her, that this story is so much more about Christ than it is is Katie Davis. And so I want to invite you, ask you to give us a little bit of a glimpse tonight into Christ in you. So let's kind of start from the beginning, a short-term trip to Uganda. So tell us how that came about and what that was like. Right, so I never, I never had Uganda specifically in mind. I just wanted to go somewhere overseas and help out. Um, I'd done a lot of volunteer work downtown in Nashville, where I'm from, and um, wanted to look at what that looked like in a third world country, and so just began applying to different orphanages that I found online. And one in Uganda, the director was really sweet and good about community communicating and said, sure, we'll take a volunteer. So I spent a good couple months trying to convince my mom to come with me on this trip. And um, during my senior year of high school on my Christmas break, we went over there for three weeks and I just, I immediately fell in love with the people and the country. And I think I was so overwhelmed by this need that was unlike any kind of poverty I had ever experienced. And I fell more in love with Jesus and wanted to take his word at face value. And so as soon as I stepped back on American soil, I knew, I knew I had to get back. He had opened my eyes to this need, and I didn't know what I would do about it, but I knew I had to do something. So that led to thinking through uh, a little longer, so three months, not enough, maybe a year in Uganda, then come back and live a normal life uh, right. after that in, in, the, in the United States. So you go back for a year to teach, so give us a glimpse into what that was like. Right, so that's exactly what I thought. I had met this pastor while I had been in Uganda who was looking to start a school program for his orphanage. He was paying so much money for the kids in his orphanage to go to outside schools. So we wanted to start small with a kindergarten. And I mean, over the last years, that has slowly grown into other grades. And he said, I'd love for you to come and just help me kind of develop the infrastructure and the class structure. And I said, well, I'm not a teacher. And he said, well, I think, I mean, God has placed it on my heart to ask you to come back. And so... Like I said, as soon as I got back to America, I was like, okay, I'll do anything that you asked me to do to come back. And so got on a plane after I graduated high school, thought I'll take this year off, 
do this missions thing. I think my parents thought she'll get it out of her system, and we all thought I'll come back and go to college and have, you know, normal life. Um, uh-huh. I get to Uganda, and it's it's actually so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, happy, I was happy to be there. I loved the people, but I was so much more uncomfortable than I'd ever been coming from Brentwood, Tennessee, which is a community very similar to this one. And um, I remember the first morning I walked into this barn that they had turned into a classroom, and it was no bigger than one of these sections of seats, but there were 140 little kids just packed in there, just back to back to back. And, you know, they didn't speak English, and most of them had never seen a white person. They Maybe some of them had seen, like, a white person in passing, but never really interacted with one. And so I walked into this front of the, the front of this barn classroom thing, and I said, hello, and everyone said, <laughs> you know, their little white eyeballs were popping out of their heads. And I said, how are you? And they said, <laughs> um, and, you know, one kid in the corner kind of started to cry. And I was like, oh, <laughs> no. Um, so do we have any teachers here tonight who have 130, 140 kids in your classroom who speak a different language? Anybody, anybody familiar with this? Okay. I think you're alone on this one. So, uh, like, I mean, overwhelming. Absolutely overwhelming. And so I would spend... the mornings just with part of my job was supposed to be to teach them English because they teach English in Ugandan schools and so I would stand in the front of the room with a ball and I would say this is a ball and they would all say this is a ball and then I'd hold up a pencil and say this is a pencil and they would repeat and we'd do it with various objects and inevitably at the end of the day a child would come up with a pencil and say this is a ball (laughs) (laughs) they got the first part right so that's good they were learning that's good So I'm, you know, you're in this moment of, okay, God, you picked the wrong person. (laughs) So sorry. Um, Over the next few weeks, though, I did, we were able to find some local teachers and some good translators that were able to come alongside me. And we divided the kids up into little groups of 30, and we just kind of taught outside in the orphanage compound under these trees. And so it got better. It got better. (laughs) Now, in the process, the Lord began to burden your heart for the need for education for children in Uganda in a way that has played out in just amazing ways since then. So tell us why. Why is education so important? Why is that such a burden on your heart, and how has that played out? Right. Um, I think that I began to see two needs as I was teaching. I would notice a child or two children would stop coming to school for a week or two at a time, and so... I was making friends with my translator, Oliver, and she is a woman from the community who knew a lot of the people in the community, and I would say, you know, can we go visit this child? Can we see why they haven't come back to school? And the problem was that a lot of them were living with a single mom or a single dad, or maybe they were completely orphaned, and so they were living with a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, someone who really wanted to care for this child but was struggling just to put food on the table, and so was not able to pay the minimal amount that the orphanage was charging for school fees. Then I also saw parents who, who loved their children. Their children aren't orphans, but they were bringing them to drop them off at the orphanage because if you live at the orphanage, you get to eat three times a day, and you get medical care, and you get to attend school. And so these people, out of love for their children and knowing that they couldn't provide these things at home, wanted to leave them at this institution, which was already just overcrowded. And so I said, surely there has to be a way that 
these children can stay with their families and still have their basic needs met. And the parents and guardians of these children so badly want them to be educated because many of them grew up uneducated and that has caused them to be able to not have a job. And in not having a job, they haven't been able to provide for their children. And so they want for their children to be educated, to have a different kind of life. Um, so that just looked like, you know, calling my parents, emailing friends, saying, if, if you can make a small donation, I, I'll use it to feed this child or to get this child to come back to school and that'll help keep this family unit together. And as 10 turned into 40 and 40 turned into 100, that's how Amazima, the ministry that I run today, was born. Hmm. So somewhere along the way in all of the teaching and education, the Lord began to shift from teacher to mom in a way that you probably did not see coming. So tell us about Agnes. Yeah, so adoption entered my world, and I didn't, before I even knew it was called that, um, I had been, it was about January, Amazima had been established and was growing quickly, and so we needed a place to call our office so that we could register as a nonprofit with the Ugandan government as well as with the U.S. government. And so I had been kind of house hunting, looking for something tiny, just a one room. I'd been living in one room at the orphanage, and that had been plenty, and it's Uganda, so there are like three houses available to rent. Hmm. Um, and I just kept coming back to this one that was kind of big and had four bedrooms and this little tiny kitchen. And I just kept saying, oh, you know, no, this is way too big for me. And the landlord would lower the rent. And I would say, well, that's nice of you, but this is still too big. And I really felt God just impressing upon me, this is, this is your house. And I was like, no, no, it's not. It's too big. But as the landlord continued to lower the rent, it wouldn't have even made sense to live in a smaller house because it, it was the same price. And so started renting this house just a couple weeks later. A house actually fell down, down the road from me and it landed on this nine-year-old Agnes. And so Oliver said to me, we have this little girl, she was under this brick wall, we have to go and pray for her. She'd been taken to the hospital. So we went and when we got to the hospital, we found Agnes just lying in a hospital bed and no one had given her any kind of care because the hospital staff couldn't find a parent or a guardian who was going to pay for the care when it was given. And so they had just allowed her to lie there in the hospital bed, but not really done anything. And so I said, okay, go ahead and do, you know, do whatever you need to do. I'll figure out a way to pay for it. But I began asking Oliver, you know, where is the parent or guardian? Why is there no one taking care of her? And she said, oh, well, their dad died a couple years ago. And so Agnes at nine and her seven-year-old and five-year-old sister, Mary and Scovia, they'd all just been living in this little house together. And so I'm thinking, no way, like who cooks for them and who takes care of them? And she just continues to insist they, they take care of each other. They are living in this house by themselves. And so I'm thinking now, not only are a seven and five-year-old without their sister, who's their primary caregiver, they're without their house because it's fallen down. And so we went to visit them and it wasn't, I mean, I didn't think like, oh, I'll adopt you. I just thought, you don't have a house. I have a house. You can come stay at mine while we, while we figure it out. And so um, just began, I'd seen sponsorship work now, so began looking for a biological family for these children thinking we'll get them a sponsor and we'll figure this out and 
After several weeks of searching for family and not really finding anyone um, biologically related or in the community who could take care of these children and just in prayer, God really began to confirm you, you are the family for these girls that you are searching for. And simultaneously with that, Scobia, the youngest, began calling me mommy. And um, he just really made it apparent that he had. I mean, we had grown together and we were becoming a family even really without me knowing it. So that's when I began the foster care process and um, started paperwork with them to one day finalize those adoptions. So that was Agnes, Mary, and Scovia. Then came along Prosy and Margaret, then Sermine, then Joyce, then Sarah. For those keeping score at home, that is eight children in a year. That's, that's a lot. Um, so, uh, so one year in Uganda, just a simple year. Uh, you come back to the United States, uh, but you knew your heart was in Uganda. So tell us what that was like, because you had said, okay, I'll come back after this year, but obviously with girls, with the ministry going on there. So tell us about just the wrestling you experienced when you came back here. Oh my gosh, I was completely broken. Even, I mean, even still, it's just hard to think about that. So hard. But I, you know, God is very clear, honor your mother and your father. And I had made this promise to my parents that I will come back. And so... I felt like I had to come back. I also felt like it was completely wrong to come back. I mean, it was so apparent what God was doing in my life in Uganda. It was so apparent to me that Uganda was not a year. Uganda was a lifetime. Um, So I did come back, and it was just completely uncomfortable. It felt like turning my back on what God was trying to do in my life, and that's a horrible feeling, so don't don't ever do that. Mm. Mm. (laughs) If God is telling you to do something, just go. Um, but it was, it was also uncomfortable to re-enter this world because for the last year I had had like two choices of food and you walk into a grocery store in America and you have 12 choices of food that you can pick for your dog. Um, and I think that, I think that God had stripped me of so many material things during my year in Uganda and even, even relationships. I mean, he's been really faithful to build good community and good relationships around me now in Uganda. But at that point, I didn't have a lot of friends. I didn't have very much of a support system. But as he stripped that all away, he seemed to get so much nearer um, and just so much closer because there wasn't anything else to rely on other than God. And so my relationship with him had so deepened that it was hard to come back here and feel like there were all these distractions and all these other things. And um, I remember even writing about a time when it felt like I was kind of able to step out of reliance on God if I wanted to, because I had all this stuff. Mm. And so I would kind of just unconsciously do that, and that was horribly uncomfortable. Mm. So then you decided to take a one-way trip back to Uganda, and along came Helen, and Jane, and Zula, and Tibeta, and Grace, and then Patricia. For those keeping count, that is 14 girls, but a journey not without without heartbreak. So tell us about Jane. Jane was abandoned by her birth parents when she was about three months old. And everyone in the family was kind of trying to pick up the slack, but just couldn't. Aunts and uncles each had multiple children of their own, were trying to work hard to support these children. And so Jane just got 
passed around from relative to relative to relative. And when she was between one and a half and two, I started noticing her just wandering around on the dirt path near our home. And so I would invite her in for lunch and then she would fall asleep on the floor and take a little nap at our house. And then I would walk her home and sometimes we would look around for you know, a guardian or an adult and not find anyone. And so she would spend the night at my house and that's kind of how I began the conversation with her aunt of, is there anyone to really take care of this child? Because if there's absolutely no one, you know, then, then I'll, I'll foster her. And so began the process to foster Jane, did, I mean, did police report and did add in the paper to look for biological parents and no one turned up. About two and a half years later, into the process of fostering Jane. In Uganda, you have to foster for three years before you can finalize an adoption, and you have to be 25. So we're just kind of waiting that out. Mm. Um, <laughs> but about two and a half years later, a woman shows up at my door, and she, she's Nancy. She says she's Jane's birth mom. She would like her child back. And I'm like, how? How? Where did you come from? How did you find me? Um, and she actually has Jane's birth certificate to prove that Jane is hers, which, I mean, most of my kids don't even, most people that I know in Uganda don't even have a birth certificate. And so, you know, I called the social worker who works for the government who gives me custody of my children, and I said, what do I do? And he said, well, you can go to court if, if you want. And so we did, and um, custody was granted back to her birth mom, and that was... I mean, that was so hard. It was devastating. It felt in a lot of ways like losing a child. And they lived about five hours from us for the first several months. This was last October. It's been almost a year. And then in April or May, Nancy showed up at the door and just again with Jane. And she said, you know, I lost my job. I've been evicted from my house. I don't have anywhere to go. I don't know how to parent this child. And so we opened our gate a little wider and Jane and Nancy both came to live with us for a little while. And we've since been able to find Nancy a job. She's working for Amazima doing some translation stuff for us. And she and Jane live down the street. And I've really, um, it's just, it's been really cool to see how God's redemption is so beautiful in so many different ways. Because I spend, I mean, I spend my whole life trying to advocate for children to stay in their biological family. That's the whole idea of sponsorship. And so while I love adoption and I'm so, so happy and privileged to be the mom of my children, I also recognize that there's been huge tragedy in their life to bring them to a place of needing to be adopted. And so I think it's so great that God can choose to redeem that in adoption into a family. And in Jane's case, God chose to bring Nancy back into her life and redeem that relationship. And he's just really spoken to me. You know, I did this because I don't just want Jane to have a family. I want Nancy to have a family. And I don't just want Jane to know me. I want Nancy to know me. And so they're friends now, and they're around and doing well. Wow. So, all right, so then 13 girls in the home, and then all kinds of people constantly at your gate, like constantly at the home, whether it's uh, men, women, people who are sick, people who are homeless. Like, give us a glimpse of the, yeah, the kind of, uh, people that are constantly flooding into your home. Right. So people in the community kind of jokingly and my staff, they call my house Grand Central Station because, I mean, there's no telling who you'll find there. Um, 
someone who needs a glass of water, someone who needs a meal, someone who needs medical care, someone who just needs advice or prayer. I mean, short-term missionaries who are just dropping by because they want to sink into a couch and have a home-cooked meal with the family. Um, and so it's, been so it's been so awesome to expand my definition of adoption from like a legal process with children to just an accepting of people into our family. And a great example is a guy who's living with us right now. His name is McCarray. And I guess I should preface that we moved about a year ago, and in the backyard of this house we moved into, there's like a cement block, and it has four little rooms in there. And I mean, they're just closet-sized, four cement wall square. Um, and so I thought, like, what is this? Who has this in their backyard? <laughs> um, and I, I didn't know, like, well, maybe we'll store stuff in there, but we don't, like, have a ton of stuff that we need storage room for. And so... Of course, God has just used that to allow us to move even more people. We had previously had single women who had lived with us or grandmothers who had lived with us or children who needed a place to go short-term who had lived with us on like a temporary fostering basis. But this has allowed us to move some homeless families into this little house in the backyard. We're able to McCarry's a guy, and so he needs to live in the house in the backyard. And so we're able to still live in community and have a little bit of separation for our family. But about six months ago, and maybe eight now, McCarray, um, his house was burnt down by the community members of the slum community that he's living in. He's kind of the town drunk and everyone is just kind of annoyed by his drunken antics. And so his house was burnt down, his leg caught on fire and, and burnt his right calf like pretty much to the bone. I mean, just you think of a burn and you think that it would be pink and just black. Um, and so my social worker who works for Mazima was in the area and brought him to me and said, found this guy, don't know, don't know what to do. And I said, oh, me either. Um, and so washed out his leg and wrapped it up real good in a bandage and took him to the hospital and said, is there, like, what do I even do about this? And they said, well, you know, he's probably just going to lose that leg, but if you'd like to try to prevent that, you need to bandage this leg every day. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and so we tried to get him originally at that point to move into the house in the backyard, and he was just so, so entrenched in his addiction that he, he couldn't, he felt like he could not be away from alcohol. And so he kept wanting to go back to Misesi where he didn't even have a home but was totally willing to sleep outside if he could just get his fix. Um, and so I would send someone or I would go myself to pick him up every day and bring him to my house and wash out his leg and rebandage this wound. And sometimes, though, we would go and not be able to find him. He would have, you know, wandered somewhere or fallen asleep somewhere where we went unable to find him. And I'll never forget on Easter Sunday, my social worker found him for me after about four days maybe of not bandaging this wound and literally like I was in the backyard and he walked in the front gate and you could smell it I mean like the whole yard just smelled like infection um which I don't know a lot of you probably don't I'm like. getting queasy right now but keep going Sorry. keep going that's all right um so I had, you know, I asked my kids, of course we were having everyone we know in the community over for Easter. And so I said to my three oldest, like, hey, I need you to help finish up dinner. And I just remember laying on my belly in the grass about this far away from his leg and tweezing these maggots out of this wound. And so at that point I said, like, it doesn't matter. Are you going to throw up? Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I was queasy. Now I'm, I'm just sick. 
just absolutely sick. But uh, are, are there more maggots in the story? Done. Are we okay? Done with All right, that's good. The rest Let's of the story is good. Physically. Uh, okay, yeah, keep going. Keep going. The rest of the story is good. Yeah, okay, that's so, good. <laughs> we move him in to the house in the backyard, and he begins, like, detox, and he's very grouchy about detox, and, um, but as he starts to get sober, you know, every day, I now, now I can do the bandage in about 10 minutes because the wound is this big, but when it was so deep, it was like a 30 minute process of just washing it out and and bandaging it well. And so every day for about 30 minutes, McCary would tell me a little part of his story. And so it turns out that he's this really educated guy. He went halfway through university and about halfway through, he found out that he had HIV and his family just completely disowned him, wanted to have nothing to do with him after they found out his diagnosis. And so feeling like he had nowhere else to turn, he turned to alcohol and that's when he started drinking and his addiction began and he had been just so kind of living in another world in this drunken stupor in the slum of Misesi that he had no idea where any of his family was. Um, hadn't, I mean, just had no one in the world. And on the day he was telling that part of the story, my 10-year-old Helen was in the sunroom and she's especially fond of him. And she said, oh, we will be your family. And so we, I mean, we have been, and he's become part of ours, and I'll never forget the day when he was, he was really quiet, and I was bandaging his wound, and he looked at me, and he said, I think, um, I think I'm out of stories. You tell me one. And so I just watched both of our tears fall on the tile floor there in my sunroom as I told him the story of Jesus and just what he had done in my life and what, what he wanted to do in McCarrie's life and what he had done for all of us. And my children were so excited by the opportunity to share Jesus with McCarraway that now, pretty much every day, as soon as homeschool is finished, you can find one or many of them in the backyard with the children's Bible, just sharing everything they know about Jesus with McCarraway. And he's, uh, I mean, he's become a great friend. He's happy, and he comes to church with us on Sunday. And sometimes if I'm out late at night, um, he'll wait by the gate to make sure that there's someone to open the gate for me when, when I get home. And so it's been... I mean, we've had so, that's just one example of we've had so many people come in and out of our lives, but just cool to be able to see what God can do when we just open our doors. I've never gone from so sick to so just erupting in my heart in praise in <laughs> one just a couple of minutes like that. So thank you for where that ended. Um, uh, so not, they don't just come to you though. You and your girls go to them. So you've mentioned Masese uh, a couple different times. Tell us a little bit about that community and what you and your girls do there. Yeah, Masese is now one of my favorite places, which is funny because it's a place I was kind of scared of initially. Um, there is a group called the Karamajong. They're a tribe from northern Uganda, and some of them have, have kind of migrated to town to try to look for a better life, but they're just marginalized and despised by other Ugandans. They're considered primitive and violent and dirty, and so they're just kind of all pushed into this little slum. Um, we're really like the worst of their tribal culture and the worst of um, like town city life is mixed together in a lot of prostitution, a lot of alcohol brewing, a lot of picking through scrap metal for livelihood. And um, the, the children are so starving because traditionally they 
find their livelihood in their cattle, but in this packed slum community, they can't have cattle. And so they send their children to the streets to beg for food, to dig through trash for food. And so I found this community just by following some of these street children that I had become friends with, just following them home one day. And, and I was, I mean, I was terrified. These are the people that even the people of Uganda will, will not be friends with. And, um, because of that, I mean, they don't trust outsiders. No one's ever been kind to them. And so kind of a scary place for a a little girl to be. (laughs) Um, but I, I began working there slowly and I, I, found out that there was a school nearby where the Karamajong are actually allowed by the government to attend for free, but they don't attend because they're so hungry that that takes precedent. I mean, the priority has to be to go to the street and dig through trash for food. It can't be to go to school. And so I thought, well, I wonder if we got school back, or food back into these schools, if they would start coming to class. And so we started two days a week, now five days a week. We feed over 1,800 children at the school of Misesi. We've seen so many children come off the street and go back up to class because now they receive lunch at the end of that. And so um, that has been really neat, a cool way to see them stay in their community with their parents. While I was making friends with some of these children, I was meeting their mothers. And these were the women who were turning to prostitution or alcohol brewing or scrap metal picking or you know other things that were just dangerous for them and harmful for their families. And so I began teaching a small group of them how to make this beaded jewelry that Amazima buys from them and we resell here in the United States. And the greatest part about the jewelry is that we pay the women and so they're able to have enough money to provide for their families. They're able to put some in savings for their future. And then the extra profit that we get from selling the necklaces here at a higher price goes straight back into that feeding program that's in the same community. And so the women know that and they are so excited and so proud that not only do they provide for their own children, they provide just for the nutrition of this entire community. And so that's one of our favorite places to go. My girls and I always go there and do ministry together and the fear of Misesi is completely gone. I mean, these people have become our close friends and I can even just let I mean, just let my three-year-old run, and I say, okay, go find your friends, and she's, she runs around in the community, and people know us and know our family and would never let anything happen to my children, and so it's been neat to just form friendship with these people. We do Bible studies in the community, and it, I mean, my kids love to go there as well. We were joking, Mike, because <laughs> this, this is a slum community where, I mean, just just rampant disease and all kinds of other things. But uh, Katie was talking about, she's got two of her girls with her here uh, uh, while she's, she's here. And uh, she was talking about how when she sees them like playing on the floor, she's like, oh no, like there's germs. And it's, <laughs> like, you let your kids play in the slum. Like I, 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 <laughs> I do. I like my kids are the kids, you know, good missionaries. They leave their kids at homeschool while they, <laughs> while they go to the slum. And my kids are the kids that have like ringworm on their face because We've been playing with the homeless, but germs in the name of ministry are different than germs just for the sake of rolling on the floor. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, So, um, maggots, ringworm now. Um, uh, So, what what I love to, so tell us about, and, and we see it all throughout scripture, ministry of the orphan and the widow just coming together. So yeah. how has that happened in this slum community? I mean, so, so many times um, the single mom has just as much need 
I mean, her children have just as much need as an orphan who's living with a different kind of relative. And so it's been neat to make friends with so many widows and watch them want to help their community, watch my children want to help them. And so one good example is Jaja Grace. She was this elderly widow. I mean, she really was only probably 55 or 60, but to look at her, you would have thought she was 80 or 90. I mean, life had just been hard for her. Her husband had died of HIV. Her children had died of HIV. She thought maybe one or two of them were living, but they just like, completely abandoned her. She hadn't heard from them. And she lived in this little hut way on the edge of the community in the back. And I just remember it was always so dark and damp in there, and the roof leaked at night when it was raining. And she was so malnourished that she hadn't been able to walk in years, so she couldn't see, and she, so she was just back here alone. I mean, I don't even know how really how she was still alive by the time we got there, but she, without me knowing it, had just been praying to God, you know, God, I believe in you, but life is too hard to believe in you. Could you send, could you send someone to help me? Could you send someone to be my friend? Um, so I didn't know this as the women in my group were telling me one day, hey, you know, we've heard there's this lady on the edge of the community that really needs help. We'd love to go visit her. Will you go and visit her? And so my kids and a couple friends and we all trekked down there. And as I walked in, she said, God sent you to me. And I said, oh my gosh, that's great. <laughs> um, and so... We, we began a friendship, and we took her to the hospital where we found out she had HIV and TB. And my initial reaction was, okay, we're going to have to move her in with us. But she really didn't want to. She was old, and she just wanted to be in her own home. And so in talking to the women in this beating Bible study group, they, I said, you know, if I bring, if I bring the food, can you kind of look out for her? And they were so excited. I mean, they were so excited to help this woman. Um, so I provided just dry food and, and soap and some little packets of medicine and two or three of them, there's 20 women, and so two or three of them would take a day and they would go down and they would cook the food, they would do her laundry, they'd make sure she swallowed her pills. And so I think, wow, if there's anything better than helping your neighbor, it's enabling your neighbor to help their neighbor. Um, and so it was really neat to watch all of us come together as friends just to care for this elderly widow in the community. And on Christmas Day, um, she, she slowly started to regain her sight just from having vitamins in her food. And on Christmas Day, we had gone to church, and then we went to kind of take church to her and have lunch with her. And um, she was able to actually stand up for the first time in years and walk around the outside of her small house for us. And so, so cool to watch God kind of give her strength and redeem her life in that. And several months later, it was apparent that she was kind of, as she was at the end of her life, she, it was time for her to go and be home with Jesus, and she was ready for that. She was ready, and so we thought we'd move her in with us. Her TB was actually communicable and at like a really contagious stage, and so we rented a little house just down the street from us where we moved her into. And it was so fun to watch my children. They were still going to like regular public school at that time, but they would come home from school and they would run inside and they would put on their little dentist masks because, you know, they had told us like, you can, you can be with her, but you have to be like 10 feet away. And that wasn't going to work well for my, my family. And so we just wore little masks. Um, they would run home from school and they would put on their mask and they'd be so excited to run up to her house and just hang out with her and share stories about her day. And so... By the time she died, we had moved her into a hospital, and we were able to be in the hospital with her the couple days before she died and just hear her be so excited 
um, to be to be going home to be with Jesus. And I was excited for her, and so we miss her, but I'm just so thankful to know where she is, and I'm so thankful. Um, just she was really, she was one of the first people that just, that was several years ago, she was one of the first people that just opened our lives to not just adopting children into our family, but adopting all kinds of different people into our family. So is there such a thing as an average day (laughs) in Katie Davis's life? So what would be, what might we expect if we were in your shoes? Like what what, what would a day look like in your life? (laughs) It can look, I mean, it can look like so many things. Um, If it's not a day that we're out doing ministry in the village, I get up, I have a lot of coffee. Um, It's like the theme of (laughs) my trip here is a lot of coffee. Um, We, you know, we have breakfast. We have the same thing every single day. We have bread with peanut butter. Um, And then we all get on the couch and we do Bible time together. And we do, for history, we study a different third world country, often one that doesn't have Christian influence in it. And we pray for that country and continue to study them throughout the week. And then we break into our different groups of math and spelling and whatever's going on. And my kids just know that, like, people will come and they will need help and I will have to stop and go help them. And they, I mean, they just... They're so flexible. They just keep right on doing their work, and occasionally they'll look up, hey, Mom, you okay? You need help? Okay, okay, we're still doing our work. Um, like help with some pretty significant <laughs> things. Like, so you mentioned sometimes people want a cup of water or somebody to pray with, but then there's also sometimes like people need an IV, and <laughs> your kids, so what do they do? Right, so... Um, yeah, so they run and get the IV kit. <laughs> and they help you fix an IV. Right. I, I'm just pointing so, that out because my five-year-old and three-year-old are not quite there yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, only the older kids are okay. allowed to go, even okay. in the closet where okay. the medical All stuff right. is. That's so good. we're talking like you know, 13, 16-year-olds. Still, we... Um, yeah. You know, I when I thought that I was going to go to college and be normal, I really wanted to be a nurse. And so huh. I've been able to take some, like, emergency missionary classes. People come in, groups of doctors come in and teach like crash courses. And so I've also been able, we do a clinic for the people of Misesi with some different registered nurses from Uganda. And so I've, you know, I just sit on the edge of my chair and watch everything that they do. And so several months ago is a great example. This woman came to our door and I mean, she didn't come. Someone brought her. They were on the back of a motorcycle. Her friend was carrying her and she was obviously in shock. I didn't know what from, but you know, her eyes were rolled back in her head and she was seizing and foaming at the mouth. And I thought, okay, we've got to get her in the car and take her to the hospital. But we're, I mean, she's going to be dead by the time we get to the hospital if we don't get some fluid into her body. And so, um, you know, that's one of those moments where kids are doing wordly wise or whatever they're doing. And, uh, and I say like, proceed, run in, get me all the things I need to run an IV. And she comes out and is, you know, holding the bag as we get this lady ready. And I jump in the car and take her to the hospital where she was fine. She ended up being fine. I don't think I said that when I told the story yeah, this morning. That's good. She's that's good. Um, yeah. You know, and then I came home an hour later and my kids are like, hey mom, how's that lady? Oh, we're done with math. <laughs> Just another day. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think, I think you're helping us in a lot of ways to kind of de-romanticize stories that we have a tendency to romanticize. What would you say or some of the biggest struggles that you face? Mm, I think that, I mean, I've told you the story of Jaja Grace, I've told you the story of McCarray, and those are stories with good endings. Mm. The stories don't always have a good ending. I mean, we've had an alcoholic mother live in 
in our home and we have poured into her just hours and hours of our life and our family and our resources and thought she was doing better and then she would relapse and we'd give her one more chance and think she was doing better and she'd relapse and finally just had to say, okay, you can't live here anymore. Um, you know, this is, was getting dangerous for my family and so she actually had to give her child up into a foster, foster care situation with another foster family. Um, you know, there are people who move in Muslim and leave Muslim and, and so Sometimes I get to see the fruit. Sometimes I only get to plant the seed. And I, I believe absolutely that God is sovereign and he will grow that to fruition in his own way. But I, I'm impatient. I want to see the fruit. And so it's, um, you know, it's discouraging. But for every story with a discouraging ending, there are so many stories with a good ending. And I think that, um, I mean, also just that the need is so great so great that there's this woman on my porch who we can get the fluid in her and we can get her to the hospital so that she is okay but 10 minutes away there's someone who was unable to get to the hospital for their medical care on time and they died and I can feed this hungry person in front of me but 10 minutes away there's a child who is starving to death and so hard to reconcile um God is, God is still good God is still sovereign and, and in that moment and with that person and and I think that he's just really confirmed for me over the course of the year, you be faithful in the little, you be obedient to the person that I put in front of you, and I will be faithful in the much, I will be faithful in the big. And so we, I mean, as a family and as a person, we just, we just serve the one person or the two or the three people that he's putting in front of us for that day and just trust him to take care of the rest. And he's been so faithful to multiply and multiply that. I mean, I see... I see 13 little girls who love Jesus. I see people like McCarray who come into our lives and leave knowing Christ. I see 450 sponsored children who are learning to know him. And I think of how their reach will be so, so, so much greater than mine. And so he's just been, I mean, he's just been confirming that over and over again in my life that mm. I'd be faithful in the small and he'll be faithful in the big. Do you think what you're doing is radical? No. I think... Um, it's, it's just what is natural and what comes from relationship with Jesus and an overflow of the love that he's given me in my life. And I think that what I'm doing is abnormal, but I don't think that it should be. Um, and so, pe you know, people say, like, well, why do you do what you do? Or how do you do what you do? But in light of what Christ has done for me, how could I not? Hmm. Okay, so this is the moment where... I've prayed, we were praying this morning that the story of what Christ has done in Katie Davis's life would then shift to this story that Christ is weaving in your life. So the same gospel that has saved her is the same gospel that saved you the same spirit who lives in her is the same spirit who lives in, in you. What I love about what she just shared there, that it wasn't like one day, okay, I'm going to you know, bring 14 girls into my home and I'm going to do this and that and have this minute. It was, I'm going to be faithful with what's in front of me that God has told me to do and I'm going to trust him to do. And so I just, I just think in this room, like what if, what, if, what if we really, in just this room, we, 
we took God at his word. Because the gospel that is compelling her is compelling us. So, so you've got it in your notes. Uh, and I just want to put this. So this is, this is key moment. So shift with me for a second. Like bring this into your seat. Because the, the same gospel that's compelling Katie Davis is the same gospel that's compelling all of us to simplify our living. It's just, so I'm not saying this will all look exactly like it's looked in Katie's life. But, but the Bible has told us all to be content with having necessities, right? So what does this look like for you? What does this need to look like for your family? For us, like, how can we get rid of the clutter in our lives that numbs our sensitivity to our need for God? We don't, we don't pray, give us this day our daily bread, because we have 12 choices for bread. So how can we be intentional? Paul says, we'll be content with these things. To simplify your living, to increase your giving. So based on Katie's life, examples all throughout the New Testament, Scriptural exhortations in the New Testament. I put three questions there. I would ask you, like, what is God leading you to share? So you have, you have possessions with clothes, or food, house. What is God leading you to share? Be generous and ready to share. It's a charge from 1 Timothy 6. What is God leading you to sell? Luke 12, 33. Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. What is God leading you to to sell? What is God leading you to share? To sell? What is God leading you to sacrifice? Now this is where we go from just giving because it feels good to giving to the point where it, where it hurts. Sacrificial giving doesn't ask how much can I keep. Sacrificial giving, how much, how much can I give even, even when it hurts? And obviously that will look different all across this, this room. Remember the widow's might. I mean she put in much less than everybody else but she gave much more than everybody else. Extravagant, sacrificial giving. So it may be sacrificed for someone to give $25 in a way that it wouldn't be sacrificed for somebody to give a million dollars. Somebody makes $10 million in the year, it's not much sacrifice to give away $9 million and think, well, I'm only going to live on a mill this year. So that's an extreme example, but what would happen if we were giving sacrificially in this culture? If we really believed God on this one, we gave till it, till it hurt. Simplifying living, increasing giving, and then considering going in so many different ways. Again, in so many different ways, spread out across this room. So going here locally, whether you live in Birmingham or if you're visiting from outside Birmingham, where you live, to impoverished communities, there are obviously communities in Birmingham that are in great need. Chris mentioned earlier the work that we're, we're intentionally doing upon, alongside our impoverished brothers and sisters in areas that were heavy hit by the tornadoes. That you can go to the website and learn more about how to be a part of just practical way to put that into, into practice. That might lead to who knows what amidst impoverished communities and then amongst needy children, continual opportunities for foster care that are constantly before our faith family. And we've really taken a big push towards Shelby County, but 
We had a whole, whole Jefferson County that is still waiting to be. What, what would happen if, if we said we're going we're gonna to care for all the kids, not just in our county, but in our, in our city? And, and has God given us the resources to do this, meaning the homes and the love and the grace, the gospel in us, and then domestic international adoption when it comes to, to tons of kids, millions of kids without moms or or dads. So going in those ways here and then going around the world, opportunities to go short term. So speaking specifically to, to members of the Brook Hills Faith Family, like there are opportunities. This is what you heard Katie talk about a trip to Uganda, turn everything upside down, or she would say right side up. And, and so, so many opportunities. You can, you can be involved in going short term of all ages. We were just talking at lunch about a, a an 84-year-old woman who was recently serving short-term uh, alongside ministry in Uganda. So going short-term, that then leads to mid-term. So high school students taking gap year before college. So let's Mormonize this thing, right? But with a, a good gospel, like a true one. Let's, let's do this. And, and to say, okay, we've got golden opportunities before us. College, you're in college. We're talking about midterm, two months to two years. Like, there's so many opportunities in there, summer, semester. And not just students, but semi-retired, retired brothers and sisters who have opportunities to go. Midterm, leading to long-term, that, that God might, undoubtedly will in this room. Maybe not all, maybe all. Maybe all of us. But... But certainly some of us, that God by His Spirit will say, wants you to live somewhere else. And so, who knows what God might do tomorrow when we are faithful today? Could it be? This is what so excites me, is I've prayed for this moment. Just hearing one story, one story of how this played out. When, when one sister in Christ takes the Lord at His word. What happens when? individuals, families. When we take Christ at his word, we take steps of obedience that are right there. We do what he's told us to do. And then he takes that, some in grand ways that turn into stories like this or even greater, some in not so grand ways in the eyes of the world, but in wonderfully grand ways because it's faithfulness to God. And so, so this is where the gospel compels us to do these things. And how it looks is It's going to look in different ways. I I would encourage you, so especially if you're a member of this faith family, before we take up the offering later, if you would say, I'm open, we'd like to talk with somebody about going midterm or long-term, to take that tear-off portion in your worship guide, turn it over under prayer requests, but midterm, or put long-term, or put foster care there if you want more information about, okay, when can I get involved in, in foster care? An incredibly important ministry. How can I find out more about adoption? So just anything along those lines, adoption, foster care, midterm, long-term, there's opportunities everywhere for short-term, so you can, you can find those very easily. But, but we as a church want to help one another think through how this looks in action in each of our lives. But regardless of what it looks like, the gospel demands this, the same thing from every one of us. And I use that word demands, and you heard Katie use it earlier. It sounds a bit forceful, but it's, it's really only natural when you realize that 
He is the grave conquering king who has all authority over our lives. As a Christian, what it means is we've sacrificed the right to determine the direction of our lives. So the gospel demands, i.e. there's no other possibility. When you believe this gospel, the gospel demands a blank check from our lives with our possessions, with our plans, with our dreams. And the gospel demands a blank check today. Not, not tomorrow to dream about, but today. And, and so I want to call you to take this story from what is Christ doing in Katie Davis's life to what does Christ desire to do in my life. Well, that's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stacy Martin. For additional articles, podcasts, events, and more, visit Radical.net or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.